0: Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message.
1: Hello, my name is Dustin Heiss, and if you're able, could you please stand as we read the scripture? Thank you. The woman caught in adultery. John chapter seven, verses 53 to chapters eight, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came back again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So, what do you say? They said this to test him said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. May God bless this reading. May you be seated. Well
0: done. Uh, Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can study your word openly and honestly and freely. We thank you that we have that opportunity in such a beautiful area, beautiful location. Uh, Open our hearts and our minds to apply what you would have us apply in Jesus' name, Amen. It's good to see some of you again. It's good to see some of you for the first time. My name is Bill. Um, Alex asked me to uh, ask me to be willing to speak. And I love Alex; he's one of our missionaries, and so it's our pleasure to do that. Um, John seven fifty three through eight eleven is one of my very favorite passages in all Scripture. Uh, There is intrigue, there is treachery, there is is guilt, there's hatred, there's love, there's mercy. There's all kinds of emotions going on in this passage, but this is also perhaps the most debated passage in all of Scripture. Uh, And and the question comes, are these the real words of Jesus or not? Are Bibles... uh, usually put a note or an asterisk said, this is not found in some of the most ancient manuscripts. Others just put it in the footnote. Uh, and so the question is, why would we study a passage that may or may not be the real words of Jesus? Well, that comes down to two questions. Um, there is... Two studies uh, in biblical uh, theology. There is the higher criticism and there is lower criticism. Higher criticism seeks to answer the question, what does the Bible say? Now I'm not a big fan of most higher critical forms of interpretation because most of them don't really try to interpret what the Bible says. They try to get away from what the Bible says. So for example, <clears throat> Matthew 14, um, Jesus feeds 5,000 men and probably between 10 and 12,000, literally with the women and children there. Uh, he does this with five loaves and two fish, so like a happy meal. Um, as he does this, and they're done, they, gra- they gather 12 very large baskets of food afterwards. Jesus then goes, uh, sends his disciples to cross the lake, sends the people away. Jesus goes up on the mountain, he prays, and as he's praying, a giant storm hits the lake. And the disciples are trying to row to get to the other side, and they're not making any headway, and Jesus starts walking on the water out to them. And the disciples scream, and it's, it's really appropriate this time of the year, it's a ghost, uh, I'm sure it wasn't October 31st, but it could have been. And they see them, and Peter, who is never short for words, says, Lord, if it's you, call me out. And so Peter jumps out of the boat, walks to Jesus, looks around and says, oh man, this, this is, it's really raining hard. Falls into the water, Jesus reaches down and saves him. And they're back in the boat. And it's an incredible miracle of Jesus' power, his sovereignty over uh, the universe, uh, his ability to provide in ways that are beyond our comprehension. And higher criticism says, no, there's actually a secret row of rocks that Jesus knew about. And he was able to walk on these rocks during the middle of a storm, not trip, and it's only Jesus who knew about it, not these disciples who were fishermen for 30-some-odd years on this lake and knew the lake really well. Um, So higher criticism just says, none of this is really true. So instead of Jesus being divine, uh, they make the Bible to be a myth. So I'm not a big fan of higher criticism. Lower criticism, on the other hand, is an exact science that tries to determine the exact words of Scripture. And it is a meticulous process. The oldest fragment we have in the New Testament is the rivalry fragment. Uh, Altogether, there's about 35,000, 38,000 pieces of Scripture that they found in different fragments. Uh, This fragment, the rivalry fragment, is found very close to the first century, very close, very soon after the Gospel of John was written. uh, And it it helps us date when a book was written. Now what was interesting is when John or Paul or Peter or James or Jude wrote a book, uh, they didn't put it in a museum. See, I would have liked it for a museum because then we would have really known Uh, But they read it to the church, they copied it, and sent it to all the other churches around so that people could read what the apostles had to say. And this is where the variants come in. Um, Now, the church has historically believed in what we call the inspiration of Scripture. And by that we mean uh, God so superintended the writers of Scripture, the biblical of the text, that it is written without error or with mistake, why we read in First Second Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is God breathed. That means exhaled by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So the church has restricted inspiration to the autograph. Now, textual criticism, lower criticism, seeks to determine. What the autograph is. And this is broken down into a number of families, and we won't bore you with that process. Um, but we can say without a shadow of doubt that we have, according to F.F. F. Bruce, who was the, pro, the New Testament scholar until he died, that we have 99.95% of the original. And the 5%, the 0.05% that we don't have, Does not affect any doctrine. It doesn't affect what we believe, how we act. It's a the here, it's an it there, it's a then over over there. So the question comes back, is this passage of Scripture part of the autograph? Is this something that we should really study as the words of Jesus? And I'm going to give you an absolute yes on that answer. It is part of the autograph. It should be part of the true words of Jesus. And the question is not so much, is it the autograph, but is where does it actually belong? Some fragments have it right here, seven fifty-three through 8, 11. Others have it um, after verse 36 of chapter 7. Others have it after chapter 25. Uh, Starting chap uh, 21, chapter 21, verse 25. Others have it in Luke 21, starting at verse 38. So it's part of the autograph. But why is it so many different places? Well, I think the best reason is because the early church, as well as the church today, had a problem with the content. They didn't like that Jesus gave grace. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said the church omitted this because it was uncomfortable with what appeared to be cheap grace. So instead of letting Scripture speak for itself, they decided to remove it from some of the manuscripts. The overwhelming evidence, however, is that these are the authentic words of Jesus, the late theologian R.C. Sproul put it this way: The overwhelming consensus is that this account is the authentic, is apostolic, and it should be considered in any edition of the New Testament. If you'd like to study this more, there's a great little book, it's probably 30 years old, called "Counterfeit or Genuine" uh, by David Otis Fuller. Uh, it's a great little read. It looks at this passage and talks about it and. And it gives you confidence that we have the autograph. We have the real words of Jesus here. Now, having said that, let's switch our, our, our thinking to what does this passage say? What, what is it all about? Now, I should let you know that Alex told me I could speak for as long as I wanted. He said, I have a couple hours, um, but you guys were leaving at 1030, so I don't know what he meant by that. So we see in this passage a a woman who is caught in a no-win situation. Jesus is stuck between a rock and a hard spot. And we read that. Fine young men read that passage for us and would probably be up on the thing. And we see some amazing people in this passage. We see scribes, we see Pharisees, we see a crowd of people out there, and we see a woman. And the first thing that this passage shows us, is that an encounter with Jesus confronts self-righteous attitudes. It confronts self-righteous attitudes. Now to get this, we we have to look at the players. We have scribes. Now, these are the most educated among the Jewish people. Uh, They were linked to both religious leaders and the political leaders, not only of Israel, but also Romans. Uh, they were connected to the high priest. They were sometimes called lawyers. They were theologians. Um, being a scribe was not a hobby. This was a full-time job. You had to study. You had to work hard you, to become a scribe. And then there's Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, they the Pharisee means separated one. And they were the Puritans of ancient Israel. They were committed to living out the teaching of the Bible. Uh, they, were, they were, generally speaking, a scribe wanted to understand the nuances of the Old Testament. A Pharisee wanted to completely live the Old Testament. Some scribes were Pharisees, but not all of them. Some Pharisees were scribe, again, not all of them. And this group finds this woman caught, and I'm quoting, in the very act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus. They walk her out there. They throw her to the ground right in front of him, right in front of the crowd that he was teaching. So Jesus had been praying all night, and this, the, the tensions were high, and people were feeling it. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they bring this woman, there's no indication that they give, their, give her any grace, give her any chance to, to get dressed, to cover herself. Uh, I tend to believe that they just dragged her out there threw her in front of Jesus, saying, here you are, here's proof of her guilt. Now, I know we're all thinking, because people always ask us, what about the guy, it usually takes two to commit adultery? Um, and some say that that these scribes and these Pharisees set this woman up and that the, that the guy that was with her was one of them and they didn't want to embarrass him? Could be. I wouldn't put it past them. I tend to believe um, that the guy ran for his life. Um, if you read the Gospel of Mark, there's an interesting passage towards the end saying this young boy ran over, the Romans caught him and he left his clothes and ran off. I think that's what this guy did. I think he was caught dead to rights, and instead of facing the consequences with this woman, he said, bye, I am out of here, Uh, good luck, be warm, be well fed, I'll catch you later. So this woman stands in front of Jesus, and the scribes and the Pharisees say, the law demands that you put her to death. And they read, I'm sure, they read Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lays with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a patrolled virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them both to death with stones The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. It is very clear that this woman had to die. Our law says it. Look, Jesus, God wrote this. God told us. You're a prophet. But the trap comes in that Roman law only allowed Romans to execute someone. And an adulteress was not capital punishment. They had what they thought was the perfect trap. It was really clever. Now, men, we've all faced this. You're walking down the street, you're holding your wife's hands, you're holding your girlfriend's hands, and there's a woman in front of you, and your wife or your girlfriend looks at you and says, is my behind bigger than hers? There is no right answer to that. That is the situation that Jesus was in. And the scribes and the Pharisees are giddy. They are excited. They have Jesus trapped there's no way to get out of this. You either show compassion and disobey God or you follow God's law and you have to deal with the Romans. It's a terrible trap for Jesus. It was clever for the scribes and the Pharisees. They were giddy. And the crowd is listening, and they're wondering, what is Jesus going to say? I mean, there's this vulnerable sinner in front of him, knowing she's guilty, knowing that she should be put to death. She's ashamed. She's lonely. She's abandoned. She's frightened. And she's wondering, am I going to live or am I going to die? What is this prophet of God going to say? And what does Jesus do? He bends down, and he starts writing in the dirt. Now, scholars and theologians and pastors and teachers have wondered year after year what he did and I'm not, what he wrote. And I'm not sure it's important, but what he wrote. But I'll give you some things that he might have written. Some suggest that he was writing the Ten Commandments. Scripture tells us that God wrote the Ten Commandments with His fingers, and Jesus is saying, "I'm God. I'm, I wrote these." Don't try to use my word against me. Some might think that Jesus is mimicking the Roman judge's practice of writing down the verdict before giving it. Others think that Jesus was writing accusations against the scribes and the Pharisees. Others think he was just doodling, just playing in the dirt. And as he's doing this, this, the scribes and the Pharisees are getting impatient. They're getting upset. They're getting, give us an answer. We demand it. Tell us. Life or death for this person. And Jesus stands up. He looks around and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And he bends back down and he starts writing again. And one by one, starting with the oldest, the scribes and the Pharisees disappear. See, they came face to face, maybe for the first time, with their own sin, with their own guilt. See, these men are no different than this woman, they were guilty sinners. They're no longer these, these self-righteous, church-going, elder, religious leaders. They're now wretched, vile sinners, no better than anyone else. Each of them deserving death. Each of them deserving punishment. Jesus showed them their heart, which they hadn't looked at. The playwright Oscar Wilder put it this way, all of us live in the gutter. So I think this is a great place to ask a question. How many times have our attitudes been that of the scribes and the Pharisees? You know, we come to Christ, He saves us, He transforms us. We start to grow, we start to mature, we start to live the, Christian, the way Christians should live. And we forget it's about grace we forget it's about redemption we we forget about it's it's about God changing us because we're not righteous we get the church ladies attitude to quote an old Saturday night line skit see we're focusing on the speck in someone else's eye and she had a big speck don't get me wrong and we forget the log that's in ours. See, we make God to be vengeful and spiteful and hateful, one ready to judge and condemn. And yet Jesus is trying to show us that that God is quick to forgive. He's desirous that all repent and come into a relationship with him. The picture these guys were painting of God broke the fourth commandment. To speak of God in vain. And yet Jesus showed us that an encounter with him, it will confront that self-righteous attitude that's so easy for all of us to have. It's so easy for us to say, I'm better than you. I've been doing this longer. My life is perfect. I don't sin anymore. Second, an encounter with Jesus is redemptive. The Pharisees and the scribes are all gone. The crowd is now on the fuzzy setting of Zoom, so you don't really see them. You just see the woman and Jesus standing there. And for now, she's escaped the punishment of death. She's deserved it. But she's standing with Jesus, and she has no thought of what he's going to say. She's fearful. She's ashamed. She's guilty. And she's waiting for some kind of answer, some kind of response. Jesus stood up, and he looks at her, and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Do you notice the irony in this passage? They threw this woman at the feet of Jesus for condemnation, but yet at the feet of Jesus, she received grace. She received mercy. Her accusers wanted to humiliate her, to treat her poorly. I mean, they stressed it that she was caught in the very act. And the the Pharisees and the scribes were vindictive toward this woman. I mean, very vindictive. And we don't really know why. But they could have put her in custody waiting for Jesus to respond. Uh, They they could have given her some clothing so that she wouldn't be ashamed in everyone else, everyone's eyes. What they did is they they wanted the town, the good townspeople to know what kind of woman she was. They gave her the scarlet letter. And instead of the people seeing who she was, they ended up seeing who they were. They were miserable. They were self-righteous. They weren't redemptive. So ask yourself, how do people see you around? Those around you, do they see you compassionate or judgmental? Do they see you giving grace or condemnation? See, this woman is standing before the judge of the universe, the one who can say you're guilty and forgiven or you're guilty and not forgiven. And she didn't earn grace. She didn't clean up her act and Jesus said, come on to church, clean up your act and get to church. She was given grace And I don't think we truly understand the grace she was given. I don't think we truly understand the depths of our depravity. That we're no different than her. And if we think that Jesus was offering cheap grace, look at the text. The language makes it incredibly clear. Where are your condemners? Those who who wanted to pass sentence and she said they're gone. I don't condemn you either. Go sin no more. There is no cheap grace here. Jesus removes all doubt that there is no cheap grace here. In the original language, if an author wanted to uh, make a point, they would put the phrase in front, kind of like when Yoda speaks. Um, They would put the first word, and that's the most important And so in the Greek it says stop sinning. Don't do it no more. See, Jesus gave forgiveness but he also called for repentance. Grace was given and it was received but the second part of that is that repentance needs to follow with that. We can't We can't continue to live in the way that we used to. See, I think her spiritual eyes were open. I think she became part of God's family. Uh, And as a member of God's family, we have responsibilities, and it's to stop living in habitual sin. Not that we're ever going to be perfect, but the old Puritans would call this mortification of sin. Paul put it this way. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin That grace may abound by no means. How can we, who died to sin, continue to live in it? And the rhetorical answer is we can't. See, this woman became a new creation at the feet of Jesus. Her life was transformed. Her life was changed. And she had to start living that way. remember a few minutes ago, I quoted Oscar Oscar Wilde, the famous playwright. Let me give you that whole quote. All of us are in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. We are all sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory and the calling of Christ. But some of us, when we look up to Jesus... We find redemption. We find new life. We leave transformed. We leave, leave dis- different. So I'm going to close with a couple questions. You're going to be, this will be on the test. Are you, do you identify with the scribe? Do you people come to you because you know the bible i mean inside and out they come to you and and you know all the little intricacies of the bible but you don't really have love for god you're not really living it i did this for a while when i when i my first graduate theology class i walked in the last day of school never went to the class took the test and Pastor the class. Man, I knew it. I wasn't loving. Are you like the scribe? Or are you like the Pharisee, man? You're, you're living it, people look at you and say, you're godly. You have it down. You, you, you are living for God. But you're doing it to earn God's favor instead of because of God's favor? And because of that, you, you're unable to to help people come to know who Jesus is. You're unable to share Jesus because you're not sure on how you do that. You're not sure how to show grace. You're not sure how to live in grace. Are you like the woman, caught in a sin for the whole world to see? Your life is imploding. Everyone around knows it. And you're waiting for the next shoe to fall? Or are you like the last group? Are you the crowd? You're listening to what Jesus is saying. You're not really connecting. You're just, he's a good, you know, he's a good speaker. I like what he has to say. I'll take it. I'll leave it. Who are you most like in this passage of scripture? do you relate to most? See, we we have friends and family who are dying for an encounter with Jesus. People we work with, people that we play with, people we go to school with, they're dying for an encounter with Jesus. So my prayer is that this week God will open Up opportunities for you to have spiritual encounters with Jesus, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your co-workers, so that they may know the redemptive power of the cross, that they may know the transformation that comes with believing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us about the woman caught in adultery. You know, Lord, we're not better than her. We're not any different than the scribes or the Pharisees or the woman. Lord, we're not. Our hearts need you. Our lives need you. So I pray, Lord, that you will open our hearts and transform us and allow us to commit fully and totally to you. Trusting your grace trusting you to show us how to love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.